The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see you tonight. So I've been giving a series of talks on equanimity. We'll continue tonight with that. And uh, maybe you could pick up from the guided instructions one way to explore or to deepen your own understanding of equanimity is just to experiment, experiment with um, bringing a more simple mind into the moment. So as you're living your life, so it's not just during meditation time, but just even as we go through the day. And again, it's not so much about controlling the mind, but when the mind is relating in a very complicated way, then we notice that, and we notice how that is for us. Or as one of my friends says, now, well, how's that working? <laughs> and then when the mind's really simple, then we just notice how our life is working, how that feels, how that works, when the mind is relating moment by moment in a really simple way. And, you know, in doing that, we begin to discern slowly what is a complicated mind? What makes a complicated mind complicated? What is the experience of a simple mind? What are the characteristics or qualities of a simple mind? Because you can imagine, like, trying to imitate it isn't it. I mean, maybe it helps a little bit to have this agenda to want a simple mind. But it's more exploring now whether the mind is complicated or simple than it is trying to make your mind simple. And like I mentioned in the instructions, when the mind is really complicated, like we have one of those storms blowing through and we're worried about something or complaining about something in our mind, you know, that can get quite complicated. And then we don't like ourselves for complaining or we, we judge ourselves for being judgmental, you know, so it gets overlapping, gets heavy. But in any moment, we can, the mind can realize, oh, it's like this. You know, my mind's a mess. It's a monkey mind. It's a zoo. We can realize that in a really simple way, meaning there's a knowing that it's like this right now. This mind is like this, or this body is like this. This moment is like this. But that simple knowing doesn't need to add anything to the moment. And it's like this mirror-like quality of the mind. So the mind getting more and more simple, the mind doesn't disappear when we, the mind gets simple. In a way, what it does is it expresses its inherent nature. So what is the inherent nature of the mind when it goes from complicated mind a lot of extra stuff going on to the mind abandoning the extra stuff and basically abandoning everything that can be abandoned, what's left in the mind? That's a nice practice question. Not to come up with an answer, but to use that kind of question to help you explore your inner world, like how the mind can be, how the mind is. What is the experience of the mind that is simple and can't get more simple? What is that? What's left? 
sometimes we say, you know, things like, well, it's a mindful mind, or it's a, it's the knowing, it's the simple, non-judging, non-interfering knowing, like the mirror just reflects what's ever in front of it, that essential nature or quality of the mind, it's just reflecting. So if it's directed toward the body, it's just knowing or reflecting the bodies like this. If the mind is aimed, in a sense, toward the mind itself, then it's just reflecting, oh, the mind is like this. If it's aimed outward, then a seeing is like this, or hearing is like this, smelling is like this, tasting is like this. So it's just simple reflection of what's true without adding anything, without uh, being compelled to react or to layer things on top of it. So one of the interesting things about experimenting and exploring what simplicity is like in the mind is like, you know, if you work with the breath and being mindful of the breath can become really complicated because it can feel like I need to be mindful of the breath. And so all of a sudden we have this construction of Mark who should be mindful of the breath. As soon as I have this idea of Mark, I have all the baggage associated with Mark, like I've never been able to make myself do anything disciplined, you know, or I can always make myself do whatever I want to do. <laughs> but both of those ideas about ourselves are complicated ideas, and there's always like counter ideas. So if we think we're a disciplined person, then there's quieter voices that are saying, yeah, but you weren't able to do this, or you're not as disciplined as this other person. Or if we have this idea that we're not a disciplined person, you know, and then there's other ideas that counter that, like, oh, but I, if I work really hard, if I'm really good, maybe I can discipline my mind finally. You know, so it's, as soon as we're, in a sense, put ourselves in the picture of needing to bring the attention to the breath, it gets really complicated. And we wonder if we're doing it as well as other people, or should we be further along given how long we've been practicing, or is this the best set of instructions to be following? I once read a book that said, or I once heard a talk that was, you know, and it's just so easy to, uh, or not, this isn't a good time for me, I had a difficult day, I didn't get a good sleep last night, my back hurts today, there's too many people in the room, where is everybody tonight? <laughs> you know, it's like endless. So we can, but we can get a real good sense of what's extra, like how all of that. It's not that it's bad, but it's not necessary. And we take up the particular training. The reason we have an anchor for the attention, you know, it's easy to just say, well, you know, if we want to be free. In experience, why don't we just practice being free in experience? Why do we have to do this stupid, silly thing of bringing the attention to the breath or feeling the body sitting? Why can't we just let everything be and be free at that? Well, of course, if we could do that, we wouldn't even need to come to a meditation center. But one of the what we learn by having a particular anchor for the attention, you know, like a meditation object, like knowing the in-breath, knowing the out-breath, or knowing the experience of sitting, or knowing the experience of hearing, is that it kind of gives the mind a context to become really simple with. 
So here we have a particular uh, object of awareness, and we can explore like when there's an awareness of the breath with a lot of extra, and when there's a knowing, a presence with the breath, the breathing process, where there's nothing extra. And then we really get a sense of the happiness, really a liberated quality. It's like the liberation that the Buddha talks about, that the tradition points to, is not so much a liberation about like getting to heaven. We're in this realm that's not so good now, but we'll get to a really good place. As much as it, as it is the mind learning how to stop creating prisons for itself, creating weight for itself, creating disturbances for itself. So it's really that process of simplification is the process of awakening or liberation. When the mind's really complicated, really entangled, it's called not being liberated, <laughs> you know, or suffering or stress. And when the mind is moving in the direction of simplicity, it's liberating itself from complications and entanglements. It's really that simple. And it's really important, I think, to take terms like enlightenment and liberation that we throw around a lot and ground them in something we actually can understand for ourselves. We already, even people who are brand new, we already know the difference between a really entangled, complicated, neurotic mind and a mind that's relatively, or maybe in moments, completely free of that complicated, neurotic activity, maybe just for a moment. And so then the mental training we do in meditation practice is that uh, not turning the simplification into another neurotic activity. I got to get my mind simple. But basically getting interested when the mind's complicated, when the mind's kind of complicated and kind of simple, and when the mind's really simple. Just getting to know how it is. And what we find is that simple knowing of how the mind is in any moment is the means to, in a way, it's a, it's a natural process towards simplification. It might seem, you know, when we observe our mind, it might seem that the natural process, the natural like, gravitational pull is towards more complications. Like you sit down and the room's quiet and you're comfortable. And, and, and as soon as you get sort of just stable in your posture, immediately your mind is starting to think about all the mistakes it made today or all the things you're looking forward to tomorrow. And you might think, Oh, the tendency of the mind is to get complicated, to plan, to worry, to compare, to judge, to hate, to be self-critical. But that, it, it's interesting. We don't necessarily see it initially, but when, we, when the mind gets a little bit more interested in what's going on and a little bit more clear, we realize that all of that, that all those tendencies to get complicated, it isn't a natural process. It's a choice the mind is making. It's like we have an experience, and because of ignorance, there's a strong assumption that what I need to do with this experience is add something extra. 
then, which is, of course, the next experience, that adding something extra is the next experience then. And then the same thing happens again. Oh, the thing I need to do with this experience is this other thing. And so moment by moment, the mind itself is creating its own hell realm, its own complicated, entangled reality. We do that all the time. We're doing it most of the day. We only get a little respite when we have activities that are so engaging, so absorbing, that the mind is so fully doing whatever it's doing that it can't do this complicated stuff, this uh, layering on of complications. So we do get a little respite in some of our activities. Something like uh, really intense happens, and the mind gets really simple in the intensity. And then later, as soon as the, we know we're not in danger anymore, then we get complicated very quickly. God, I could have died. You know, wait till I talk to so and so about this. You know, this shouldn't be happening to people. And on and on. So in the meditation practice, we're we're specifically learning how that can become the simplification. Actually, is the natural gravitational pull. The mind is drawn towards simplicity, but we have to recognize that those complicating tendencies are unnecessary. Basically, we have to learn to stop working at making the mind complicated. The mind will go towards simplicity if the mind stops resisting it and working toward complications. So it's funny how that is. <laughs> so then. Because of the mind being confused and, and, and basically believing in making things complicated for ourselves, we have to work really hard to remember, to see that, and to see specifically see how it's not helping. And it's that seeing that allows the mind to abandon that tendency. The abandoning of that tendency happens when we see it. We have to see it. In order to see it, we have to be encouraged that there's something to see, to look, not just to be on the surface, but to look at what's driving our mental activity, the kind of fear and greed, the neurotic force in the mind, the self-centered force in the mind that feels justified, feels compelled to do one more neurotic thing. Basically, to think about the moment from a self-centered point of view. That's the one more neurotic thing. And even when things are going well in our meditation and the mind is getting some calm, there's a strong compulsion to want to think about how my mind is getting calm. That's why this instruction, although it may take a while for you to work with it skillfully, I would explore it. I mean, the Buddha was, he mentioned this instruction so many times. Not me, not mine, not myself, not who I am. And you can play with the language a little bit. But the reason, again, that we need this instruction is because there's so much momentum to our self-centered neurotic thinking. So we have to... We have to invite in this other possibility that I don't need to do this. I don't need to turn the present moment experience of knowing it's like this. I don't have to see it or turn it into a self-centered story. 
This is a good definition of equanimity. The experience of not needing to tell ourselves a story about our present moment experience, about the present moment experience. I mean, can we have, like right now, measure work right now, can we have this present moment experience without there being a subtle or an obvious story about the experience we're having? You know, without that internal commentary or internal dialogue to ourselves about the experience we're having. I mentioned maybe last week, but it's a really powerful image, so I'll mention it again. Um, could have been in the Buddhist studies class on Monday night that I mentioned it, but Joko Beck, a, a wonderful Zen teacher from San Diego, one of the real matriarchs of Western Buddhism. She's probably in her mid now, maybe late 80s. And uh, she's got a couple of wonderful books. And in one of her books, she talks about, you know, being a human being is having like a nice house with nice windows on all sides and nicely built, well-ventilated, spacious, beautiful, simple house providing wonderful shelter. That's like having a human mind body. And then, you know, for who knows what reason, because this brain got complicated, who knows. But what human beings have a tendency of doing in a neurotic, self-centered way is building a superstructure right around the house, the perfectly fine house that we have, the perfectly fine life, or the perfectly fine moment. Because this is all being done moment by moment. So we have a perfectly fine moment. And very quickly, because the mind works very quickly, the thinking mind, conceptualizing mind, it works very quickly. So very quickly, each moment, moment by moment, it builds another house, another, this is this inner internal dialogue, right? We have this life, and then what we do is we tell ourselves a story about the life we're having. It's like building a house around the house we have. And then, of course, the life that's being lived begins to feel, as she describes, kind of dank and dark, right? Because we've got this superstructure around us. It's totally unnecessary, extra, heavy existence around this very light, nimble, alive life that's being lived here. There's a beautiful discourse in the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha about uh, this in, in some ways. And it involves Rahula, the son of the Buddha. Some of you know the story, I'll just mention it briefly. But when the Buddha was 29, before he was this a wise teacher, he was just a prince of a small little fiefdom in northern India. And uh, had a family had a lot of wealth. He had a lot of comfort, and he began to, to feel how limited that was. Like he was just living his life, but this comfort in the end was going to be meaningful, of course, as we should all know too. So he decided to become ascetic, and he had just he was married, had a newborn son. So it was pretty traumatic to leave, traumatic for the son and wife, and probably traumatic for him to some degree too. Anyway, he left it behind, practiced for six years, 
studying with different people, had a deep awakening, deep insight into his mind, experienced a lot of freedom from that insight, and became a quite famous teacher very quickly in India, and would travel around northern India, and eventually traveled through the area where he was born, <clears throat> where his wife and son were, his family members were. And his wife said to his seven or six-year-old son, see that man? Go ask him for your inheritance. So Rahula went to the Buddha, this monk, this ascetic, and said that. And the Buddha said, OK, come and you become a novice monk. So Rahula, as a young boy, became uh, one of the monks traveling around with the other monks, and uh, a little bit later, the nuns, too. And anyway, now this is now when he's 18. So he's been a novice monk and then eventually ordained as a full monk uh, for about 10 years. And uh, early in the morning, the Buddha got up to go collect his one meal for the day. You take your bowl. As soon as it's dawn and you can see the lines in your hand, then it's the time for the monks and nuns to walk to the nearest village and to receive any food that the local people were willing to give. So he walks in, and then they walk in in order of seniority. The first person who ordained or became a monk first, first in line, all the way to the person who most recently ordained. And so Rahula was probably near the end. But uh, he saw the Buddha ahead of him. And uh, he just, uh, just caught his eye how attractive, what a great presence the Buddha had. And evidently, he was a tall person, an attractive person. And it, the thought arose in Rahula's mind, you know, I'm the son of this great teacher. I, too, am attractive. I, too, look good, you know. You know, he has a great presence. I, too, have a presence. And the Buddha, being psychic, picked up what was going on in Rahula's mind and knew where this led, led to, you know, this kind of self-centered neurotic thinking, a lot of attachment to self, to body, and uh, to nothing Good. So the Buddha stopped, which was unusual when they're collecting their alms, because it's more like a walking meditation into the village. They don't, they're not supposed to really talk um, as they're walking in. And, but he stopped and he said to Rahula, um, Rahula, any kind of material form, whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form should be seen as it actually is with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. But this isn't meant to be some philosophical statement like the Buddha saying, you know, philosophically, we don't own anything. Nothing belongs to anybody. He's actually talking about training your mind to perceive in this way. Just like, you know, superficially, I look at my hand and on the surface, if I'm not careful, I immediately, I not just, I, I'm not, I don't only just see the, you know, the fleshy color and the particular shape of the hand, but I also, in a sense, see or know the thought, that's my hand. It's hard for me to do that. It's hard for me to look at Jeffrey without the memory kicking in and going, oh, that's Jeffrey. You know, he's somebody I know well. We can't, it's, that piece just comes almost automatically. So we actually have to work when we look at our hand or when we feel sensations in the knees. We have to work at just experiencing the visual form or the sensory experience 
as just sensory experience. It's not easy, is it? Like now to feel your body. And I mentioned that in the guided sit tonight, like when you're feeling or knowing the breath going in and out, you know, is it possible to just feel the sensations? And when we are just aware of the sensations, like that touching the breath going in, touching the air, touching the nostrils as it goes out, when we're aware in that simple way, there's absolutely nothing about Mark in that experience. If you just feel your hand, you know, just the tingling in your hand now, or if your hand's touching something, just that simple contact, pressure. What if self of Mark or whoever, whatever you call yourself, what, a, what of that is in that experience of vibration and contact or pressure? It's just sensation. There's no self there. That's something the mind applies or projects onto the experience. So this is the instruction the Buddha gives to Rahula. Of course, as you might imagine, he's a bit uh, shocked and maybe ashamed a little bit that the Buddha has to caught him basically tripping on himself. And uh, so he has the thought, you know, who am I to go collect food for the day, having just you know, made a fool out of myself? Maybe it'd be better if I just find a big tree to go sit under. So he did. He found a big tree, sat down, crossed his legs, and began to reflect on what the Buddha taught him. And uh, at the end of the day, he went to see the Buddha to get some more instructions. And so the Buddha opened up this instruction. And he did it in, I think, a very clever way. And I want to share that uh, because we can do the same thing. Now, back then, the way they described their experiences in terms of what's called the four elements. But it's just a way of describing or a way of categorizing our material experience, our experience, uh, kind of the physicality of our experience. They talk about the earth quality, the water quality, the air quality, the fire quality, and the space quality. So earth are all this sort of like pressure, uh, weight, hardness, softness, things like that. Um, Air is sort of more the the sense of uh, lift, support. Uh, Water is a feeling like how all the different, different qualities of physicality all kind of fit together. And fire is just the feeling of temperature in one's experience. So it's just as if somebody divided up anybody's physicality into just different categories so you can get to know the experience of physicality in a more intimate way. And so the Buddha uses that. The first thing he does is he breaks it down into these five categories, earth, water, fire, air, and space. And he tells them basically, your experience of materiality or physicality is not me, not mine, not who you are. It's not, it's not self. And you want to look at each part and see that. So basically he's saying, don't get attached. Don't take it personally. Don't take physicality personally. Because when you really look at physicality with mindfulness, there's nothing personal about it. The only thing personal about physicality is the story the mind adds to the experience. It basically tells a self-centered story. And the mind, because it's being superficial, not clear, connects the story with the direct experience of physicality. 
That makes sense? And we want to see that. So first the Buddha uses these five elements that way. And then once the mind, once Rahula is able to unhook from taking physicality personally, then now physicality is not a neurotic thing. Now it can be a great teacher. So now the Buddha, in the same talk, asks Rahula to practice being the earth, to being water, to being fire, to being air, to being like space, to basically see the experience of earth and understand that as a natural process, you know, touch, weight, hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness. This is just natural process, this experience. And to see that as a, um, a quality or kind of expressing the quality of equanimity. So I'll just read a little bit. He says, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen, agreeable and disagreeable contacts, or you could say experiences, will not invade your mind and remain. So when we don't practice like the earth, like a natural system, a natural process, unfolding process that the earth is, then things do invade the mind and they stay there, meaning they proliferate, the mind proliferates. So we do have a touch, you know, something touches us, the cool air touches us, and we like it. And so we, the mind proliferates around the liking. Oh, I gotta get air conditioning in my house, you know? Or we don't like it. Why do they always air condition these buildings so much, you know? It's unhealthy. So that's the adding on. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. He says the same thing, he uses the same teaching with water, you know, just like water, you know, that you can throw dirty things and clean things, but the water isn't horrified, isn't disgusted by what is thrown into it. You can do the same with uh, air. Air is willing to touch excrement and beautiful flowers and everything in between, and it doesn't get attached to the beautiful and disgusted by the ugly. And then with space, he says, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as space is not established anywhere, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen, agreeable, and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Sort of an interesting, you know, we use this image a lot in meditation practice to develop a mind like space. Because it really helps to uh, train the mind to not create a center in experience. So when we're aware of sounds or aware of the body or aware of the breath, the first stage in practice is often like there's a sense of the observer 
knowing the breath, or the observer hearing the sounds, or the observer feeling the body. So there's, in a sense, a center knowing the present moment experience. And that's, a, that's an important step in the right direction. But as that experience that of being present in the moment becomes more refined, it becomes clearer and clearer that the sense of being the observer or being the one witnessing the breath is unnecessary. It actually gets in the way of knowing the breath or hearing the sound or feeling the body sitting. We don't need to construct the idea that there's somebody being mindful of the breath. There can be mindfulness of the breath without that extra thing. And this is what mindfulness of space helps with. It's like the Buddha says, uh, see how he says it exactly. Just as space is not established anywhere, or another way that I like to say it, there's no center in space. You know, now we say like the space of this room, it doesn't really have a center. Space doesn't have a center. The room might have a center, but the space doesn't have a center. And the space isn't contained by the boundaries of this room. You know, we can see the ceiling, but the ceiling doesn't affect the space at all. But when our mind fixes on the walls, the floor, and the ceiling, then doesn't it appear that the space is contained or controlled in some way? In the same way, when with our ideas about things, our concepts, we create boundaries in our lived experience. All of a sudden, our lived experience, this is what we're, of course, very familiar with, our lived experience feels very constrained by who I am, what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, what I really want, what I'm afraid of, what I'm afraid you're going to do, what I hope you will do. All of these thoughts about things are like putting walls, you know, except we've got one of those houses that they built long ago where the rooms never get bigger than 10 by 10, you know, and then people add closets to them. And it gets really constrained and complicated and hard to work with. And in practice, what we do is, as we pay attention, first, we notice how confining our lived experiences. That's an unfortunate, unavoidable experience for someone interested in this path. At times, you're going to feel claustrophobic in your experience of the body, in your experience of your mind and emotions. It's going to feel claustrophobic at times. But if we learn not to freak out by what we're feeling, so we feel, see, know the constraints in the mind, you know, the habit energy in the mind, our thoughts about things, we're not confused, not reactive to what we're feeling in the body, all the tension all the hardness, heaviness in the body. If we learn not to react to what's going on in the mind and the body, the mind begins to intuit or wake up to space, a space of mind that's not constrained by our ideas of things, our patterns of reactivity. This is also a simple mind. So this is so interesting how when things get really simple, they also get really vast. Simplicity is not, a, it's not a, a constrained or contained experience. Simplicity is opening the mind, opening in a really vast, empty, 
and liberated way. It has a beautiful feeling to it. The Buddha calls this, you know, the one taste of practice is the taste of freedom. The mind being unconstrained by its conceptual activity. Doesn't mean we can't think. It just means the mind isn't confused by the thinking, isn't attached, isn't driven by the thinking, isn't dependent on thinking. So thinking then becomes what it was meant to be to begin with, which is just a tool that the mind can use when it needs to think. And when it doesn't need to think, it just is left alone. Or maybe because of momentum happens quietly in the background, in the periphery, but isn't disturbing and confusing the mind over and over again. One more image before I open it up for discussion. Uh, one of the well-known similes the Buddha used uh, in his talks was this image of taking a cup of salt and putting it in a bowl of water. And he asks, you know, the monks and nuns there, you know, will this cup of salt in this relatively small bowl of water, will it make the water salty? Of course, they said, well, of course it's going to make it salty. It's going to be really salty. And then the Buddha says, just, just so. And how about if I take that same cup of salt and dump it into a really big lake or a big river? Will it make it salty? And they go, well, well no, because it's such a small cup and the river or the lake is so huge. It won't affect it at all. And the Buddha says, yeah, just so. When your mind is narrow, constrained by your thoughts about things, your self-centered mental activity, then everything that happens, everything you experience, is going to be, it's going to have a real impact. So we have a little pain, but because we're in a neurotic, self-centered place, we're going to react to that little pain. Or something pleasant happens, and we're going to react to that when we're in a narrow, self-centered place. When we're in a relatively not-so-narrow, not-so-self-centered place, we call it equanimity, you know, in the direction of equanimity. Then something pleasant or unpleasant happens, and it doesn't make such a ripple in the mind. Yeah, it's really nice, but we were already feeling pretty good. So the nice thing that's happening, it's not such a big deal. Or we're, we're already feeling spacious, content, at home in the present moment. So if something unpleasant arises, it doesn't make a big splash. It's like a little drop in a big ocean. And already we're noticing this. You'll notice that when you're really, the mind in a sense is really small. Some of you who were watching Saturday Night Live in the 70s, and Steve Martin used to have a routine about getting really small. You remember that? Let's get small. <laughs> But when we're really small, everything matters. Everything's heavy. Everything's impactful. And when we're when the mind is vast, then there's room for everything. The mind doesn't need to pick and choose. It basically can say yes to everything. So I'll leave it here. We have 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people. Examples from your own practice that seem relevant to the talk tonight or questions. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Terry. Can you repeat what you said by not being a mind? Yeah, the, the actual translation um, in Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, his translation is, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And in the, it's 
the Buddha and some other discourses kind of breaks it up. You know, it's like it doesn't exist uh, in who I am. You know, it doesn't. It isn't completely who I am. Like I belong to it. You know, it's not something that I own. So all the different ways that we imagine self, it's not that. Yeah, not something we own. Not who I am. Not something inside of me or belonging to me. Not something I belong to. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts? Yeah, Dan. Found your thought about Rupula and having these thoughts come through. Maybe another way of looking at it is that we're pursuing not judgment It's a really good point, but I think if we really look at it, as the cool air is hitting the skin, if there is, a, uh, in a sense, a perfect clarity with it, then there probably wouldn't it probably wouldn't go any further at that point. Now the thought might arise, you know, uh, out of compassion for ourselves at another. Point, you know, like when we walk into the hot house, then having recalling the cool temperature at the center, you know, the thought might arise. But it would be just like letting coolness and then the pleasantness of the coolness just be what it is. But if there's a little bit of of uh, sort of taking things personally, then the thought might come up. But you're absolutely right. Then we don't need to turn that thought into a problem. It's just that then let that thought be the next natural thing that's happening. So I think that's a really important point that you make. Not to turn the thought into, oh, I made a mistake. Because now I'm thinking about I should have air conditioning at home. But just to relate to that thought in a simple way. Remember, relating to experience in a simple way simply means seeing the experience as nature instead of seeing the experience of self. So that thought then we see as an expression of nature instead of I'm thinking this thought, so you better listen to me. <laughs> Thanks. That's a good point. Other thoughts? Sense of space? Lots of um, 
little tricks that you'll naturally pick up in your practice that can help just open the mind to a more spacious, less reactive way of relating. I remember one funny one, but I think it actually works. Uh, Ajahn Amaro mentioned once about, you know, as a monk, uh, he doesn't drive. Um, so he's often just sitting in the passenger seat, being driven around at different times. And he said he practiced sometimes, you know, instead of having this idea that I'm zipping along at 70 miles an hour, moving toward what I'm seeing out in front of me, he said he would just play with his mind. I just have the sense of things coming to him. You know, you could think, well, that sounds pretty self-centered. <laughs> you know, but we can do this not just when we're driving, but just in our life in general, like just the sense that Thursday is just sort of moving toward us. You know, old age is moving toward us. Everything, you know, fall is moving toward us. And what it does, it kind of can create a sense of resting somewhere. What are we resting in? in sort of instead of, in a way, being the activity, like i got to get to Thursday, I've got to get to my 60s. Now that I'm in my 50s, I've got to get to my 60s, or you know, whatever, however we imagine our life, me getting somewhere. That resting is a bit like resting in space. Like I'm here, I'm the, like, to take like that sort of an intermediary stage, to take the self to be the space which is receiving everything that's coming. You know, in order for Thursday to arrive, Wednesday's got to leave. And it's not only day by day, of course. You know, in order for this moment to arise, that's arise right now, the other moment has to completely disappear. So you see that everything that's happening, thoughts and sensations, experience, is happening moment by moment. It's all happening with such continuity, such unceasing change, that there's really nothing much to it. It's like being the space in which all that stuff is coming and going, in a way, is so much more substantial than being the stuff getting identified and reactive to the stuff that's coming and going. And in a way, in a funny way, the emptiness of space is the only thing of real substance in the universe. All, everything else, when you really look at it, is very ephemeral. I mean, just our thoughts seem so substantial, but I mean, they're coming and going so fast, there's not much of anything. And this is true with sensation too, although Sensation seems a little bit more substantial, but when you really look at sensation, there's really not much there to it. It's the thoughts we have about our body that give it a sense of solidity, but not the actual experience of the body. So this is not just some... Um, uh, it's a, This instruction is powerfully transforming to be the space of the present moment and not the activity that's coming and going. External or internal activity. So I'm not just talking about the external activity, but also all the activity of emotion, the movement of emotion and thought. But to be that empty, clear, radiant, alive with knowing space of the mind, of the heart. Thoughts about that?
Yeah, Bonnie, and then Maria. So your thought has ended, and maybe just repeat, we can all do this too, not just Bonnie, but just in your mind, Bonnie, just repeat that question, you know, I'm, and we can all just like, I'm wondering if there are any more tricks, just shorten it to that, I'm wondering if there's any more tricks. Now when we repeat that in a moment in our minds, just notice after the, notice that moment when the thought ends, okay, so everybody just repeat that thought in your mind. So it's kind of like a drop-off, you know, it's like we all feel quite substantial. I'm wondering if there are any other tricks I can use. But then if we're, and then normally we just go right to the next thought. But if we get interested in that gap where the thought ends, it's like all of a sudden there's a huge vast space right there. Now, we feel a little naked or a little uneasy in that space, so it takes a while to cultivate an appreciation that's not harmful, nothing to be scared of. This is the space we're living in. We're completely, fully adapted to being in this space, this empty space. And uh, so that's that's just another little way, is like you're noticing a lot of thinking, you know, you're sitting and you notice a lot of thinking. Then, this is an Ajahn Sumedho instruction. So then just notice the last thought you had and then intentionally rethink that same thought with the intention to notice the end of the thought, to notice the space that opens up when the thought ends, and to practice resting in that space. And you can do it again. And even like the thought that I'm not getting anywhere in my practice, that would be a great thought to work. It would be like a mantra. I'm not getting anywhere in my practice. And then just open up to complete freedom for a moment, you know, and then you say it again. I'm not getting anywhere in my practice. And then you realize how absurd that is. Because the freedom, it isn't about getting anywhere. The freedom's already here. It's really basically learning that you don't have to repeat that thought anymore. You know. But I really aren't, I'm really not getting anywhere in my practice, you know. And so then you just, well, let that go too. You know, like let that thought in and realize I don't even need to stop saying that thought because that thought maybe can temporarily obscure the freedom of the heart and mind. But it can't diminish it in any way. It can't stain it in any way. So that's just another trick. <laughs> Other thoughts? Oh, Maria, were you going to say something? <laughs> Did you notice I was getting tight in the space? <laughs> oh, well, thanks for sharing that. Anybody else enjoying the space? Yeah, best, best comment. I've been brought here after much discussion about
Well, what you described is, is kind of the real engine, which is we have our daily life practice, which is generally filled with a lot of distractions because we can't control the environment so much. And then we have our retreat practice. And the Buddha made a big deal about uh, external seclusion, whether it's just your 30 or 40 minute daily sitting time where you have a quiet, uncluttered place to practice, or whether you go on a weekend or a nine day or a three month retreat where there's a lot of seclusion and protection for that period of time. That part is really important that to get out of our um, responsibilities and duties for a period of time. Now, if you've got a lot of flexibility, you can actually create a life that's a nice balance where you're still in the world earning a living, let's say, but you got a lot of a lot of uh, space, a lot of non-distraction. You can control your life, your environment to a large degree. And then you might be able to do it without a formal retreat practice, whether it's daily sitting or going away on retreats. But that's pretty rare, you know, that someone could do that. Uh, really minimize the number of insults coming in. Um, you know, I would, in some ways, I have the perfect job. But, you know, even working at Common Ground, it's not a perfect place. You know, there's a lot, I need to go home <laughs> sometimes to get out of the kind of ocean of distractions here. Um, so ideally, you'd want both. You'd want to really get interested in bringing the practice into your daily life as it exists for you now with your duties and responsibilities. And you'd really want to explore how seclusion can make sense in your life. How much time can you actually afford to put away every day for a relatively secluded practice? Or come to Common Ground and do it here if, you, if it doesn't make sense to do it at home. And how many days out of the year can you afford to go away from your duties and responsibilities and your actual home, you know, into a more uh, quiet setting where you don't, you don't even have the visual image of your house and all the things that are there for you and you're not around your loved ones and it's a it's a more intense experience of seclusion and how much of that makes sense in your life some of its personality like some people just don't like to do the practice in daily life and they really depend on going away on retreats and other people seem to do a lot better developing the practice by modifying their daily life schedule and having times who are sitting and and just simplifying their other parts of their life. So it partly it's just personality and, and your karma, like what kind of life situation you have. Do you have kids? You know, do you have a busy job? How, you know, how many hours a week do you have to work in order to have a living? Those sorts of things. Thanks for asking. Let's just take a few moments, like all the words. I'd appreciate being here together. appreciating how pragmatic and powerful these teachings are, and appreciating the generations of men and women who have done the practice and as best they can passed it on to the next generation. And for a long, long time until it arrives right here for us to take up and develop 
so we can be inspired to be part of this wholesome stream of goodness. Developing the practice is a deep way of caring for ourselves and caring for those around us. So may our lives, our practice be a cause for happiness in the world and peace and freedom from suffering. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.